Welcome to the Placebo Magic Podcast, the podcast about teaming up with your superstitious brain. I'm your host, Durmak, the wizard and peasant lord of this vast ten-acre realm of Habdur, also known as Farm Code Gary, also known as Garrison Benson. Greetings, Placebo Mages. Our topic for today is the afterlife. I want to explore in what ways the concept of life after death might be useful within a strictly atheistic, naturalistic framework, i.e. I'm assuming here there is no literal heaven or hell or anything of the sort, and I'm assuming that your consciousness simply ends when you die, but I want to explore how the imaginative idea of an afterlife could help us to lead better lives. Okay, so first off, let's look at this idea of the dualism of body and soul. In terms of where consciousness comes from, there's no evidence at all of a soul existing separate from the body. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that it's not the case. For instance, you know, there's people who uh, have brain injuries, physiological injuries that completely change their personality and their morality. So uh, that would seem to suggest there's there's no soul outside of the body. That's the the create that's the source of consciousness. However. There is still usually a conceptual difference that we hold between soul and body. Uh, we can kind of imagine what it would be like to leave the body and float around as a spirit or switch bodies with someone or be reincarnated, partly because that stuff is everywhere in pop culture. But also, while our consciousness doesn't exist apart from the body, there is a real separation at play, a related separation, which is the idea that uh, who we are think we are, the, our beliefs about ourselves, our ego, is never strictly aligned with the truth of who we are, with reality. Our mental models about ourselves are not strictly accurate. They're separate from reality. There, there's a discrepancy. Um, th and this discrepancy between mental model and reality is even wider when you're talking about other people. Your beliefs about other people are at best going to be a really crude approximation of reality. Still useful, but crude. Suppose instead of defining a soul as the source of consciousness, you define it instead as the collectively imagined imprint of a person, the aggregate of all the mental models of that person in the brains of all the living people who knew them uh, or who, who have imagined them. Under that definition, then, the soul really is separate from the body. When you die and your consciousness uh, fades into oblivion, there will still be imaginary approximations of you left over in other people's heads. Even more generally, I think you could define a spirit as any imagined being, any imagined consciousness, whether or not that imagined consciousness is a reflection of a real consciousness, like that of a person who has lived, or whether it's entirely imaginary, like that of a fairy or a god or even a, a fictional character. A human soul, then, just happens to be one type of spirit, one type of imagined consciousness. Because humans are such social creatures, and, social, and we're creatures that plan ahead, we have all this hardware in our brains dedicated to imagining other people's inner lives, other people's consciousness, anticipating how they might react to our behavior, and also anticipating how we ourselves might feel or act in different situations. It's like a little simulator, a little, a little of the sims in our head. And all the little characters being simulated, those are spirits under this definition. That's where spirits live. And by that definition, spirits are quite real. They have a, a very potent impact on our day-to-day -day lives. Um, the same circuitry 
that we use to try to anticipate whether your dad will be mad at you if you steal a cookie from the cookie jar is also used to anticipate whether God will be mad at you if you have premarital sex. Even though your dad actually exists and God doesn't, your brain is using the same circuitry to run simulations of each of them. They're both spirits in that sense. They're, they're a mental imprint of a, of a, a, a consciousness that you're, that you're simulating in your head. And if you haven't listened to our episode about soul puppets, which is episode five, uh, I'm really talking about the same basic thing here, just in a slightly different way. Anyway, the difference with a living person as opposed to God or a jinn or whatever is that the spirit, the mental model of that person, is constantly being subjected to reality checks. Whether that person is someone you personally know or just like a celebrity or yourself, your mental model is constantly being tweaked and hopefully improved to more closely resemble reality. Um, because there's a point of comparison. You can compare your mental model to reality and keep keep tweaking it. You might say that as long as that person lives, that soul is bound to a body in the sense that it's bound to reality, to this mortal plane, so to speak. But when that person dies, that's no longer the case. The soul becomes untethered from these reality checks, untethered from the body. And now your instinctive, instinctive beliefs about that person are free to transform into a more idealized form, into pure spirit, so to speak. I think for most people, when they die, uh, we like to imagine them shedding their burdens and, and their suffering, being forgiven for their sins in their lifetime, um, being perfected and becoming perfected and angelic, and living forever in a paradise. When we imagine an omnipotent, omniscient God forgiving their sins and welcoming them into paradise, that helps us to move toward forgiving them ourselves so that their spirits, i.e. the impressions they made on us uh, during their lives, can rest in peace can, in, in our own minds. On the other hand, uh, more troubled or more troublesome souls might stick around and haunt the living as we continue to feel afraid of or judged by people who can't hurt us anymore, or as we continue to feel heavy social obligations to people after they're dead. Um, like maybe you feel guilty about dating after your spouse passes away, or maybe you keep your child's bedroom exactly as it was on the day that they died, or maybe you feel obligated to avenge your father's death. <clears throat> I, I use the term haunt to try to highlight there's not really a very big difference in practice between actually believing in ghosts and spirits versus just trying to process what's left behind in your brain when someone passes on. Whether or not you interpret the creaks and drafts in an old house as being connected with your dead mother, in either case you might still feel a pressing obligation to finish her life's work because her spirit lives on in your brain's little social life simulator. And that spirit has unfinished business. Okay, so what about the locations of the afterlife? Heaven and hell and that kind of thing. Why can't we just say that our loved ones are happy and at peace and just leave it at that? Well... It seems that when it comes to pure spirits, mental models of beings that are not based on currently living people, that are, that are not subjected to these constant reality checks, it's much easier for these spirits to come to life in our minds if they have somewhere to live. Uh, there's this practice called tulpamancy in which people create tulpas, basically extremely vivid imaginary friends that seem to have their own consciousness apart from yours. And one thing these folks do to help their tulpas come to life is that they envision what they call wonderlands, places for their tulpas to carry out their lives when they're not interacting with their host personality. Um, 
just having a place where you can imagine them living makes a huge difference in making them seem real, making them kind of spring to life and have their own uh, sort of independent animation. Similarly, I've heard of witchcraft practitioners who build little houses for like spirits or fairies. And of course, people have been building temples to house gods for ages. Habitats seem to help spirits come to life in our mental simulators. And so I think that's what the therapeutic value is for heaven or hell or other afterlife habitats. The people we like are comfortable in a, a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms with a big, big table where we can play football. That's a throwback to a 1990s evangelical song. Uh, the people we hate, for good reasons or bad, are stuck imprisoned and tortured forever somewhere where our idea of justice is being served to them and they can't hurt us anymore. Um, in either case, heaven or hell, we have somewhere to put them, partly to keep the idea of them alive and sort of processing, and partly to, to transform our feelings about them, to let go of any unfinished business that we have with them. That way you don't have to keep your, your kid's bedroom exactly as it was when they passed away. Your, your gropey, creepy great-uncle doesn't have to haunt your house. They have somewhere else to go so their spirit can kind of be out of your hair and can be either at peace or in horrible suffering, but in either case, you're free of it. Even for spirits bound for paradise, sometimes it's necessary that they spend time in purgatory, which is uh, when you have to wrestle with some aspects of their memory before you can be at peace, when it, you know, when it takes a little while to get there to, where you, to the point where you can imagine them in heaven. I personally like the idea that for uh, that, that purgatory basically means you're a ghost for a while in this world. It's just a, a cool image. A spirit sticks around as a ghost as long as it keeps clinging to unfinished business. In the meantime, the living can communicate with the ghosts in order to work through these issues, which of course are really the, the living's issues, the issues that the living have in relation to the dead. Of course, you're just talking to yourself when you're talking to ghosts, but that doesn't mean it's not helpful. It helps you to process your feelings. You can talk to ghosts and help them accept peace, help them to make their way into heaven. Or in the worst case scenario, when dealing with a ghost, you can just banish them to hell. When a spirit is resting in peace, or at least safely kept away from you in hell, that means it's no longer disturbing your peace. Now, the details of the places don't really matter too much. I remember in my grandma's last years when dementia was whittling away her sense and she was absolutely obsessed with heaven and with my grandpa waiting for her there. We used to ask her questions about what she thought heaven would be like. Grandma, do you think there are dogs in heaven? Of course! What about cats? Do you think there are cats in heaven? I don't think so. Are there birds in heaven? Well, yes. What about bugs? No, I don't think there are bugs in heaven. And when, when I think of my grandma and grandpa now, I just imagine them in a, a particular heaven that has plenty of dogs and plenty of birds, but no cats and no bugs. Anyway, that kind of covers the therapeutic value of heaven and hell. Even if you know logically that the deceased person's consciousness is gone, you can still benefit from imagining their spirit somewhere else to help you transform your feelings about them and to help keep them alive to you. But there's another function that the spirit, the imagined consciousness of a deceased person can play, and that's to serve as a guide. The virtuous people in our lives who pass away are mentors and role models and spiritual teachers and parents and the good who died too young. Um, they can make a certain kind of impression on our minds 
and sometimes we feel a little lost when they're gone. We wish we could tap into their wisdom or their love or their refreshing presence. And to a certain extent we can, because while they were with us, the social hardware in our brains learned how to simulate them. This is where the worship of ancestors or saints comes from. It's a way to interface with that simulation, to ask your subconscious to try to please generate some of that virtue. Like we've discussed in past episodes, oftentimes it's much easier for us to produce a virtue or a strength when we sort of trick ourselves into thinking it's actually coming from outside ourselves. Uh, when you feel like your spirit is weak, you, if you can convince your subconscious that a stronger, more virtuous spirit is encouraging you, you can gain real, useful strength, even though you know logically that it's still coming from inside your brain. It's just coming from outside your ego, outside your sense of self. In that sense, after you die, your spirit, the impression that you made on other people, will live on. So what does that say about how to live your mortal life? We've been discussing things from the perspective of the folks left dealing with someone else's death, but what does all this mean in terms of your own mortality? Well, obviously death is the one thing in life that you can't avoid. They say death and taxes, but plenty of rich people dodge taxes all the time. But we learn through spiritual practice, uh, especially mystical practices like meditation, that the self is a fluid construct. Your self, your ego, uh, is your soul, your spirit, by our definition, to yourself. It's your own mental model of yourself the impression that you've made on your own brain. And that can change. For practical biological and evolutionary reasons, our mental models of ourselves approximately reflect our bodies and their needs. Um, but we have the power to redefine what we mean when we say I and me and myself. And that's what preparing for death is all about. Like I said, through mystical practice, through the mind observing itself, we gain an understanding about just how fluid and illusory the notion of self is. Through mindful living, we gain a sense of deep connection with the world around us, with our loved ones, with plants and animals, land and sky, with the cosmos as a whole. And that helps us to let go of our idea of self as just the mortal body, and instead identify with something larger, your family, your community, your land, your country, humanity, Gaia, the body of Christ, you're one cell in a bigger organism. And when your mortal body dies, you can live on, providing that you've learned to change the meaning of the word you. If you strike me down, I shall become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. You become one with the force. And it, it goes farther than just changing your conceptual framework. From there, after you've worked to change your framework through this mystical practice, um, while you're still living, you can change your behavior to start investing your time and money and energy and attention into this self beyond self. For starters, you can prepare your soul for the afterlife. By learning graceful detachment, you can help to ensure that you won't stick around in your loved one's heads as a ghost clinging to unfinished business. You can prepare your soul to become a saint or a guardian angel. By developing virtue, you can make a strong impression on the people around you that will continue to help them and guide them long after your individual consciousness fades. They say that when your the way your parents talk to you eventually becomes your own self-talk, the way you talk to yourself. And in that vein, you can practice a way of helpful speaking so that when you're gone, the way your spirit speaks to the living, uh, that way your spirit speaks to the living in a way that's helpful and not hurtful. 
and you can create art so that the living can continue making a deep connection with your spirit long after you're dead. All that will help you to make sure your spirit, the memory of you, is helpful and not hurtful. But when you become part of a self beyond self, you still have an afterlife even if you're not remembered at all. It's okay if nobody even knows about all the helpful things that you did. You can care for your land to help yourself that is your land to move on. If you see your, your land as, the, as your broader self and you're just one piece of the organism. You can care for the earth to help yourself that is the global ecosystem to live on. You can vote for politicians that will take care of our children and the earth and the marginalized to help yourself that is your nation and your family and humanity live on. You can help to reform and revitalize your spiritual tradition to make it more truthful and more genuinely helpful so that yourself, that is your God or your church, the body of Christ, for instance, can live on. Even without a name or a face attached to them, all of your anonymous virtuous actions ripple forward into the future, helping these larger selves live on and ensuring that your legacy lives forever. Even if it's not a legacy attached to your name, it's still your legacy if you, if you define you as something bigger than just your body and your consciousness. And the crux of all this is that when the boundary between self and other starts to fade, selfishness and selflessness become one and the same thing. When you see yourself as all of humanity and, and all of planet Earth, what's the difference then between selfishness and selflessness? What's the difference between the selfish therapeutic gain of making sure that other people want to honor your name and memory when you're gone, and the selfless gain of making sure that your loved ones have nourishing inner voices when you're gone? I think that's one of the markers of a healthy spiritual tradition and practice, is that it doesn't treat the therapeutic function and the moral function of spirituality as two opposing forces. Real self-help creates positive outward ripples, and real helpfulness is genuinely therapeutic. That's the way it ought to be. That's a healthy ecosystem. That's, that's symbiosis. Anyway, for this episode, I've been focusing on approximately Western and Christian-ish metaphors for the afterlife, because that's what's culturally dominant here in, in the West, and, and that's what I'm most familiar with. But there is one common thread I've noticed across all the different versions of the afterlife that I've heard of, whether in Eastern religion or Western religion or fringe occultism or Star Wars or wherever else. And that is that all of these different ideas of life after death have one thing in common. They reflect back toward life. They depict an afterlife. But what they're actually doing is they're helping to guide us in living our mortal life more happily, more healthfully, and more helpfully, even as our loved ones die. That is the truth and the value in the metaphor of the afterlife. Now it's time for the spell of the week. The spell of the week this week is a ritual to invoke the presence of a deceased loved one. Alright, so for this ritual you're going to need several candles and some kind of small object that is connected to your deceased loved one. This could be an object that they owned and interacted with often, like your dead husband's wedding ring, or it could just be like a photo of your loved one or a letter from them or something like that. Especially effective is anything that carries the familiar scent of a loved one. For me, I have a Christmas tree pin that my grandma wore in her coat for the last several months of her life. 
Now, arrange the candles on a table or an altar in a semicircle around the object. Practice mindfulness for a minute or two to empty your mind and then light the candles. Sit quietly, holding the object and focusing on memories of your loved one. Imagine as vividly as possible the sound of their voice, their smile, their laugh, their scent, their touch. Close your eyes and speak to them aloud. Invite them to send their spirit into the object so that you can carry their presence with you during your day. Ask them to give you strength and wisdom and to show you their love. And if you want, you can ask for any more specific guidance that you need with any particular situation you're dealing with. Then just put the object in your pocket or around your neck or any other way that you want to carry it with you. Now, you can do this ritual just once and to gain, to gain some help from the spirit uh, of a loved one to navigate a specific situation, or you could do it regularly just to keep them with you. You only need to perform it once to invite the spirit into the object, but if you want to do it more often, uh, the more often you perform this ritual with the same spirit and the same object, it'll get easier and easier to experience that person's presence. You can find the Placebo Magic Podcast and my poetry and other writing on the web at farmcodegary.com. Send your feedback to farmcodegary at protonmail.com and let me know if I can read your feedback on the show. Music is by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. You can support the show by giving us a review on your podcast app of choice, sharing an episode with a friend, or becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash placebo magic. Patreon supporters also gain access to our Patreon-exclusive bonus show. Remember, magic is a metaphor, and metaphor is magical. Magical.